Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Start with a joke this morning. Have you heard the one about uh, the two wise men and the fool? There are three men stranded on a deserted island. Two of them wise, one a fool. They found a lamp. They rubbed it. Magic genie came out, granted them one wish each. The first wise man said, I wish I was back home with my family. Poof. Instantly, he was home. Second wise man said, I too wish I was back home with my family. Poof, it's gone. The fool said, oh man, I wish my friends were here. <laughs> little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little folly can ruin everything. This is Solomon's sermon in a nutshell this morning. We have been unpacking his sermon, otherwise known as the book of Ecclesiastes, week by week, as Solomon has systematically exposed for us the eternal emptiness of every vain pursuit here under the sun, how none of it can ultimately satisfy us, because none of it ultimately can survive death. That is his most definitive answer, why? Nothing in this life will last us survive our last and greatest enemy that he told us about last week in chapter 9. And so Solomon concluded, in light of death's inevitability, the best thing for us to do is to simply live the best lives we can these few short days God gives us here on the earth. Now he turns to the question, how do we do that? How do we live our best life now? And Solomon's answer is, by wisdom. Wisdom teaches us how to live rightly, as we ought to. He has already commended wisdom to us back in chapter 2. There's more gain in wisdom than in folly. Chapter 7, wisdom is good and advantage to those who see the sun. Wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom gives strength to the wise. Chapter 8, who is like the wise. A man's wisdom makes his face shine. And yet, Solomon has also, even more frequently throughout this book, warned us of wisdom's limitations. In chapter 1, in much wisdom is much vexation. In chapter 2, the wise dies, just like the fool. Chapter 6, what advantage has the wise over the fool? Chapter 7, I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. It's unattainable. Chapter 8, a wise man cannot find out God's ways. And last week in chapter 9, there is no wisdom in Sheol and death. As we said, like everything else here under the sun, wisdom is only temporary. So this morning, Solomon is going to... Uh, reiterate this consistent message that wisdom is good, but it is insufficient. Moreover, he's going to observe that folly is overpowering. Wisdom may take you one step forward, but folly is going to set you two steps back. Wisdom may be able to get you off the island. Folly can wish you right back there again. Commentator Philip Ryken explains folly for us. Biblically, a fool in the biblical sense is not necessarily someone with below average intelligence. Rather, the term refers to someone who lacks the proper fear of God and thus is prone to go the wrong direction in life. It is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. 
fool then is characterized by impulsive disobedience, self-centered arrogance, and rash disregard for God. I heard one pastor this week explain it. Uh, Folly not as a measure of one's IQ, your intelligence quotient, but rather your GQ, godliness quotient. So here's a quick outline of this message for you. Solomon's going to give us six wonderful qualities of wisdom. But with each, he immediately counters it with two destructive traits of folly. So six steps forward, 12 steps back. You can do the math. And with each of these observations, we're going to consider together some of the present-day practical implications, life applications that this wisdom has for us. So I pray this message will be eminently practical for you this week, but I also want to show you in every case how Jesus proves to be the perfect fulfillment of wisdom for us. For most of the sermons in this series, you may have noticed I've tried to bring us back to Jesus at the end, but this morning I'm not going to make you wait all the way till the end. I want to tie every point here as we work our way through back to Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians one twenty four. So we've got a lot to get to. Typically we stand for uh, the reading of God's word and go through it all once together, but we've got so much uh, all the way from chapter 9, verse 13, to chapter 11, verse 6, almost you know, two chapters, and so uh, we're just going to dive in and read it as we go. Before we do that, let us go to the Lord together once more in prayer. Father, thank you this morning for the wisdom of your word that you have not left us in the dark about who you are, about who we are, and about our need for a Savior, and about your provision of that Savior in your Son, Jesus. God, I pray, would your word be wisdom for us this morning? Would you open blind eyes, unstop deaf ears, soften hard hearts to receive, hear, see, the good news, the gospel this morning, even in these chapters, practical chapters of Ecclesiastes, would you make much of Jesus as we submit ourselves under the authority of your word now, we pray in his precious name. Amen. <clears throat> Observation number one, wisdom is great, but folly is preferred and ponderous. Solomon repeats this word great three times in verses 13 and 14. As we begin, he says this example of wisdom seemed great to me. A great king came against a little city. He built great siege works against it. But in verse 15, there's one little poor wise man in the city who by his wisdom was able to deliver the city. That's how much greater wisdom is than the king's power, verse 16, he says, wisdom is better than might. It's greater than his siege works. Verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war. And yet, in spite of wisdom's greatness, folly, we find, is preferred. Solomon laments in verse 16, the poor man's wisdom is despised. Here, he saved the city, and he's hated. His words are not heard. I read the story this past week about uh, one man, Leo Major, who during World War II single-handedly saved the city of Zwolle, Netherlands, 50,000 people from falling to the Nazis. 
The night before the invasion, Major snuck behind enemy lines. He convinced a German officer that they were surrounded by Allied forces, and then he spent the rest of the night with a bag of grenades, setting off grenades strategically all around the camp until they got convinced that he was telling the truth, and they got so scared they ran and fled. Now, imagine Leo Major running for mayor of that city of Zwolle and the town voting him down, rejecting him, forgetting all about him, verse 15. Friends, that is exactly what you and I do to Jesus every single day, isn't it? And Jesus, Jesus single-handedly saved, rescued our lives eternally from sin, death, hell, and yet every day we ignore him, we forget him, we despise his words. Jesus said, love your enemies. We retaliate instead. Jesus said, store up treasures in heaven. We're more concerned with our bank accounts here on earth. Jesus said, love me above all else, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and yet we choose family, friends, career, personal ambitions, money, comfort, pleasure, sex, any number of idols above him. We prefer folly. And not only is it preferred, it's also ponderous. Ponderous means extremely weighty. In fact, Solomon tells us that folly outweighs wisdom. The same amount of wisdom and folly, folly wins. That's chapter 10, verse 1. It says it doesn't matter how expensive or aromatic your perfume is, just a few dead flies over time will ruin it, make it stink. The ethylene from just one bad apple really can spoil, ruin the whole barrel. Solomon puts it in chapter 9, verse 18, one sinner destroys much good. You know this, don't you? I know this. As a pastor especially, how many churches, entire ministries have been devastated by the moral failure of just one man, the pastor? It's getting hard to count. Actually, folly is even weightier than that because Solomon could have said not just one sinner, but just one sin destroys much good. One night stand can ruin your marriage. One night. That pastor could have lived above reproach for 40 years of ministry, and all it takes is one moment of indiscretion, giving in to sexual temptation once, lashing out at a fellow elder once, plagiarizing from the pulpit once. Just one foolish decision can overshadow 40 years of good decisions. Friends, sin is that powerful. Romans 5 tells us that sin came into the world through one man. Just one foolish decision in the Garden of Eden ruined everything. But here's the good news, the rest of Romans 5. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Adam's sin ruined everything, but Jesus' death and resurrection restores everything. That's how great Jesus is. In your life here under the sun, just one foolish decision really can define and destroy you. But praise God, in your eternity to come, 
Just one wise and righteous act on Jesus' part will outweigh and undo a lifetime's worth of foolish sinning on your part. Praise God. Wisdom is great. Jesus is greater. Observation number two. Wisdom is a guide, but folly is too loud and proud to listen. Wisdom can guide us through life. Verse 2 now, chapter 10. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right. Now, as the only right-handed member of my family growing up, my father, mother, sister were all left-handed. Potentially the only right-handed member of my current family, Polly and Ellery, are both left-handed, TBD on Elijah and baby. Uh, but this is my chance to settle the, this issue once and for all biblically this morning because in Scripture, the right hand is associated with strength that saves and supports and protects. The right hand is used to convey blessing, Genesis 48. It associ- it's associated with authority, Jesus at the, sitting at the Father's right hand, Colossians 3.1. And at the final judgment, the sheep are going to be on the right, and the goats are on the left. So take that, you lefties, <laughs> life. Wisdom guides us to the right, to what is right and to what is righteous. But a fool's heart inclines him to the left. A fool in his pride refuses wisdom's good guidance. God gives us his word as a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our paths. The Bible is supposed to be like our moral, our spiritual GPS to help us navigate our way through life. But the fool... Is like the stereotypical husband, too proud, stubbornly refuses to stop for directions. I don't need anyone's help. I don't need to plug it in my phone. I know the way. All the while, he is headed 180 degrees in the wrong direction. Friends, you need to know that when it comes to navigating the moral, spiritual complexities of, of living in this sin-filled, fallen world we're in, you need directions. Proverbs 13.10, wisdom is with those who take advice. But, Proverbs 1.7, fools despise instruction. And not only that, but they do so loudly. Verse 3, the fool says to everyone that he is a fool. Proverbs 13.16 puts it this way, a fool flaunts his folly. He's proud of it. And typically... Solomon knows typically the loudest and proudest folks are the wrongest. A truth speaks for itself. It does not need to be screamed to be true. The louder you have to shout something, typically the wronger it is. That's true in politics. It's true on social media. It's true with those trying to redefine morality in our society today. Beware of the loud and proud. Jesus is the opposite. Here's how Jesus described himself. He said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Of all the people who had every right to flaunt, but every right to smugly do things his own way, Jesus instead humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, being obedient to his Father's will and wisdom, not my will, but yours be done, all the way to the point of the cross for us. That is wisdom. 
And Jesus is inviting us to let him be our guide again this morning. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Observation number three. Wisdom is peaceable, but folly is powerful and it is promoted. Wisdom, on the one hand, is peaceable. It brings peace and tranquility. Wisdom quiets tempers. It calms arguments. Verse 4 here assures us that calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Proverbs 15.1 comes to mind. A soft answer turns away wrath. James 3.17, the wisdom from above is peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. And Proverbs 3.17 reminds us of wisdom. All her paths are peace. But now, let's turn and consider the context that demands such wisdom of us. In verse 4, it says, It's when the anger of the ruler rises against you. Proverbs 14.29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great wisdom, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. And according to Solomon, such hasty tempers are unfortunately and disproportionately a hallmark of the powerful. He observes in verse 5, I've seen this evil under the sun. It's an error proceeding from who? The ruler. Solomon observes, not always, but most often, the more powerful one is, the less peaceable and gentle he becomes because you get used to getting your way. And you become more intolerant of not getting your way. And there's, but he, he also notices there's a chicken and egg effect here because not only do the powerful tend to get less peaceable over time, more foolish, but the foolish also tend to be the ones who get promoted to such positions of power in the first place. He says folly is promoted. uh, Verses 6 and 7, folly is set in many high places. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking the ground like slaves. And I would argue that we need look no further than the political candidates that both parties have put forward in recent years as case in point here. Someone emailed me this past week and said, you know, I'd really like to hear you encourage the congregation from the pulpit to go vote next week. My response is, I'd really like to see a party put forward a candidate worth voting for. Someone I'm not totally embarrassed to set up on a horse as our leader. Sure, go ahead, do your civic duty and go vote on Tuesday, but I'll tell you this, if, if your hope for our country resides in any name on the ballot this Tuesday, you're going to be woefully disappointed. Because there's only one hope for this country, and Jesus isn't on the ballot Tuesday. And what's sadder, most of us wouldn't vote for him even if he was. We prefer loud and proud leaders to gentle and lowly ones, don't we? We prefer powerful leaders to peaceable ones. If we were the first century Jews back in Jesus' day, we would have had a really hard time accepting him as our Messiah. Because like them, we would have been expecting, wanting a king like David, a warrior king who rode into town on his high horse, kicked down Pilate's door, guns blazing with a vengeance. 
not a king who rode into town on a humble donkey, overturned our tables and our temple, and then died naked in humiliation on a Roman cross. Here's how Philip Ryken puts it. Angry rulers rose against Jesus, yet he refused to fight anger with anger. Instead, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And by his calm response, Jesus laid great offenses to rest, carrying our sins upon the cross and forgiving everyone who trusts in him. Now, Jesus calls us to follow in his footsteps this morning. Who is the angry or foolish person in your life, and how will you respond to them this week? The way to glorify God is to lay great offenses to rest by keeping the calm of Christ, which we can only do by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the way of wisdom. Observation number four. Wisdom is profitable, but... Folly is irresponsible and impatient. Solomon notes in verse 10, Wisdom helps one to succeed. It is profitable. It yields a good reward. But then he gives us six examples of just how counterproductive folly can be because it is irresponsible. It's reckless. Folly is careless. It is by folly, verse 8, that he who digs a pit falls into it. You're trying to be productive, digging your well, your irrigation ditch, you're not careful, your own work can come back to bite you. Speaking of getting bitten, verse 8, it's by folly a, serp- a serpent bites him who breaks through a wall, just doing a little demo on your house. You better be careful. Snakes love hiding in dark, tight spaces. Really practical wisdom here. Verse 9, he who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. We're, we're tempted to start thinking that he's just giving us, you know, warning us about common workplace hazards uh, that everyone, you know, the wise and the fool may be susceptible to. But notice verse 10, he reminds us that he has folly specifically in mind because how does the log splitter endanger himself in verse 10? He says, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the axe, the edge, then he must use more strength. So you're chopping away, you've got to use more strength, and it, I don't know if you've ever chopped wood, but if you're not careful, you hit a solid knot in the wood with a dull axe, and it can literally bounce right back up and split your own head open. I've gotten close. Solomon says that is foolish. If you would just take 10 minutes and sharpen your axe, check for snakes, clearly mark your pit, then not only will you protect yourself, but you're actually going to split a lot more logs in the long run with your sharper axe. And that leads him to his second point here. Folly is impatient. The fool puts his head down and he just chops away without a first, second thought. But wisdom tells us, stop, sharpen the blade, and you will be far more successful. Similarly, Warren Wearsby explains of the serpent charmer in verse 11, he was a fool because he rushed. He wanted to collect his money in a hurry, move on to another location. The more shows he put on, the bigger his income. Instead, now he makes no money at all. He may even be dead. Solomon's point with both the lumberjack and the snake charmer is this. Don't cut corners. It's better to do things well than to do them quickly. Friends, how 
this is not just about log chopping and serpent charming. How can you make this practical for your life this week? How can you apply this wisdom to your finances, to your marriage, to your parenting, to your spiritual life? Financially, are you always looking for the next get-rich-quick scheme? Proverbs 13, 11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Patient, responsible investment. Maritally, wouldn't it be great if there was a weekend workshop that you could just attend and overnight fix decades of unhealthy patterns in your marriage relationship? Wouldn't that be great? I've had couples come into my office spend 20, 30 minutes explaining the, the scope of the problem, the issues they're having, and then ask, is there a book you'd recommend? I'm like, yeah, the Bible, every day for 30 minutes for the rest of your life, plus marriage counseling regularly, and then maybe you've got a prayer. Because there is not a book out there that you, you two are going to read in the next two weeks together that's going to fix this. This is bad. And there are no silver bullets. God is able you put in the time, the work, and your parenting, cutting corners. It may save you a few meltdowns in the short term. Yes, you may avoid a few tears in the aisle of Target over that toy that your toddler really wants and has to have right now by simply caving in and buying it, by simply caving in and letting them have dessert, even though they didn't eat their dinner like you said. But you will pay for it in the long run. Right? Parents, you know this? You're creating a monster. A self-indulgent, entitled, spoiled little monster. Spiritually, there are, no, there are no silver bullets. There are no magic Bible studies I can recommend. There are no magic right now media video series out there. No magic sermons you can listen to. No magic prayers you can pray that instantly replace your need for a patient, faithful walk with the Lord over a long period of time, a long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson defined the Christian life. Jesus wants so much more than a momentary decision from you. He wants your life. He wants so much more than the pledge card you signed at youth camp 30 years ago. I hate to break it to you, that doesn't save you. Signing something, praying something, won't, that single act won't save you. He wants your heart today. A relationship with Jesus will save you. He wants more than the, the five minutes in your devotional in the morning and 30 seconds in your bedtime prayer. He wants a relationship, which is a product of time spent with him. We cannot cut corners in our relationship with Christ and expect to get results. Plus, he is worth every second that we will give him and all the seconds we, we, we don't give him. He's worth it all. Why? Because he didn't cut corners for us on the cross. Jesus patiently, conscientiously endured the agony of the cross to profit us. It wasn't reckless love. He conscientiously, he knew exactly what he was doing for our eternal gain. By his wounds, we have been healed. Observation number five. Wisdom is a blessing, but folly is a curse, and it's also cocky. Wisdom is a blessing. 
Some of your Bibles here may have a footnote with an alternate translation of verse 12. Perhaps you're reading the KJV or the NIV or the NASB or the CSB, all the versions that I believe translate verse 12 here better than my own ESV on this point. The Hebrew literally means, it reads, the words of a wise man's mouth are gracious. They're gracious. Again, Riken explains, the point of the verse is not that wise speech will get us something from other people, namely their favor, like my Bible translates, but rather that wise words will enable us to give something to others, namely the gracious love of God. This is exactly the opposite, Riken says, of the way most people use our words most of the time. Words have the power to help us get what we want. We use them to get a laugh, to get attention, to get someone to do something for us, to get a job, to get the girl, to get the guy. But do we use our words as instruments of grace? Do we speak for the good of others or as a way of achieving our own agenda? This past August, we had 30 of our leaders here at West Hills take a survey to help us assess the relative strengths and weaknesses of our church and one of our lowest scores on the survey was question 35. The atmosphere of our church is strongly influenced by praise and compliments. And as your pastor, I have to confess and admit that I have to shoulder a lot of the blame on this point because culture has to start at the top. And so I want to repent of that commit going forward with God's help to being more gracious with my words, with using them to bless you as God's people. Because you know me, I don't have a problem with pointing out our sin, do I? Your sin, my sin, society's sin, I'm good on that. My problem is the grace sometimes. The grace, gracious words, giving gracious reminders what God has done for us. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses has made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace we have been saved. Grace. To all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God and so we are and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I was convicted this week, preparing for this sermon, of how much more frequently I quote for you from the pulpit, Romans 3.23, which I hope you all have memorized by this point. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. But I often fall short of finishing the rest of the passage and reminding you of the good news of verse 24, that we are freely justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so church, be blessed this morning by God's gracious love for you in his son Jesus. And let us be a church that is known for the grace that we richly lavish on others out of the abundance of grace that we ourselves have received because 
The alternative is folly. Back in Ecclesiastes now, the lips of a fool consume him. They are a curse, not only to others, but to himself. Notice, the fool's words consume him. Does everyone harm? Verse 13, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. It's bad all the way through. Jesus warned, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they have uttered. Solomon himself warned us back in chapter 5, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Let your words be few. But the fool... Here in verse 10, ignores that wisdom and charges babbles on. The fool multiplies his words all the more. And specifically, his problem here is his cockiness. It's his arrogance, his self-assuredness. For Solomon, the, the reason that we shouldn't say so much is that we really don't know that much. If I might paraphrase him from back in chapter 1, he said, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. So wisdom ought to be humbling. But the fool, oh, he's got plenty to say. Verse 14, he multiplies his words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? He doesn't know. James in the New Testament would rebuke such a fool. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know. What is your life, James asked? You you are a mist, a hevel, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And so Proverbs 27.1 exhorts us, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. And not only does the fool not know about tomorrow, he can't even find his way home. That's verse 15. He can't find his way back to the city. He wears himself out trying to find the way home. It's a humorous image. Roads were clearly marked, even in antiquity, and yet no amount of road signs can help the fool because he's convinced that he knows a better way, and so he refuses instruction, advice, direction. Observation number six, maybe he does so because he's drunk. That's observation number six. Wisdom is discerning, but folly is intemperate. It is indolent and it is indiscreet. Wisdom, first of all, is discerning. Solomon applauds wisdom in verse 17. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Solomon's already told us, remember back in chapter 3, there's a time for everything under the sun. Turn, turn, turn. And now he tells us that wisdom is how we discern what time it is, the proper time. Think back with me to chapter 3 for a moment. He said there's a time to plant and a time to pluck up. Wisdom tells us the time to plant is the spring, time to harvest is the fall. We know there's a time to kill and a time to heal, but wisdom tells us you don't put down a one-year-old dog who's got kennel cough And you don't drop five grand on a 15-year-old dog on surgery. Let it go. Wisdom tells you that. We know there's a time to embrace and a time to let go. Wisdom tells us which time it is in your current relationship. Is he the one? Is she a keeper? Or do you need to let them go and move on? 
It is by wisdom that you will discern this. By contrast, folly is intemperate. Solomon pronounces, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Remember, there's a time for both. There's a time for working, time for partying. That was last week, chapter 9, work hard, play hard. But wisdom tells us the time for work is in the morning, and the time for partying is the weekends. Coffee's for breakfast, wine is for dinner. Folly, however, is intemperate. It is indiscriminate. It is immoderate in its indulgence of appetite. Folly says bread is made for laughter. Verse 19, wine gladdens life, so let's do it all the time, and money answers everything. Solomon is quoting and mocking the fool in verse 19 who lives simply to eat, drink, and be merry. Remember, Solomon has commended as much to us only if life here under the sun is all there is. If there's no God and no afterlife, then sure, Solomon says, live it up while you can. But his last line here, money answers everything, is so sarcastic it lets us know he is clearly critiquing that kind of approach to life. There is more to life. Don't just eat, drink, and be merry. Live for God, the fear of God. We'll get to that in two weeks as we end Ecclesiastes. No, wisdom teaches us to live lives of moderation. Second, folly is indolent. It is lazy. Verse 18, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Again, super practical advice. Solomon points out, even if you are lazy and you're just trying to save yourself some work, the wise person recognizes an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. It's a whole lot easier and cheaper to patch a roof than it is to replace it. So get off your butt and go fix it. Identify and address the problems in your life before they compound. Again, I hope that you hear him talking for you this week about more than just home improvements. Because some of you need to apply this in your marriages, in your parenting, in your relationships, in your job, in your personal sanctification. All the same principles apply there. They're all like our roofs. There's normal wear and tear as we go through the hevel of this world that over time requires maintenance. Don't be lazy. Don't let problems fester. Deal with them. Now to drive home his overarching point that folly outweighs wisdom, Solomon concludes chapter 10 with a bonus third problem with folly to really drive it home, it is indiscreet. Folly lacks discretion. It is the opposite of discerning. Verse 20, even in your thoughts, don't curse the king. Nor in your bedroom, you think you're alone in private. Don't curse the rich. This is folly. Little bird is going to go carry your voice. He, he's going to find out. He has his ways. But they're always listening on our devices. Solomon was a prophet, right? He's, he's anticipating. Folly personified. Pull it together. Folly personified as a drunken, lazy, careless nitwit. Wisdom personified is Jesus Christ. The all-discerning, sober-minded, hard-working, ever-prudent Son of God. Now, we're going to end with a slightly different takeaway this morning than previous sermons. You may have noticed a pattern throughout this series to my conclusions Ecclesiastes 1, you can't trust in wisdom, trust in Jesus. Chapter 2, you can't trust in pleasure, trust in Jesus. Chapter 3, you can't trust in work, trust in... You're catching on. Good. And to be sure, trust God is half 
of Solomon's parting words of wisdom for us as we turn now to chapter 11 for his ending of the passage. But the other half is this. Work hard. Work hard. Solomon has spent a chapter and a half now extolling wisdom's virtues and castigating folly while also making it clear to us that folly here under the sun eclipses wisdom in a fallen world. That if you just go with the flow and drift your way through life downstream, you will live a life of folly. That living wisely here on earth will require you to swim upstream. And so Solomon's parting words here is to do just that, swim hard upstream, work hard at getting wisdom, Proverbs 4, 5, at cultivating wisdom, Job 12, 12, and at living by that wisdom, Proverbs 9, 6. As Solomon says, that's good. Do that. Work hard at wisdom. And he says it all in a really subtle way, actually. In chapter 11 now, he writes, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. What's he doing there? He's, he's borrowing this metaphor from the international shipping business, of all places, with which Solomon is very familiar, we know, 1 Kings 9, of sending one's grain out to sea and then waiting for the ships to return after many days with goods from a foreign land. That is his way of encouraging us to invest in wisdom. You, it, it may not, in the short term, remember, May not in the short term seem to pay off, but in the long term, it is worth the investment. He reassures us it's going to pay off, especially when disaster comes, verse 2. You're going to need wisdom. And he says this. He tempers the advice in verse 3 this way. He says, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. Translation. There are some things in your life that God, in his providence and his goodness, allows you to actually have control over. He gives you agency, free will. And then there are some things in your life that are completely out of your control. And you're just going to have to trust God with those things. And only wisdom can help you tell the difference. Right, this is Solomon's version of the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity, the peace to accept the things I can't change. It really should be called the wisdom prayer. That's, that's, the, that's the, the biggest thing. The courage to change the things I can't, but the wisdom to know the difference. I have absolutely no control over the clouds, the rain, the wind, whether or not it blows that tree down in the middle of my field ruins my entire crop for the season. But I can control whether or not I plant, whether or not I sow my seeds in faith and do my part and then trust God with the rest. Solomon says, I can tell you one thing, you're definitely not going to reap a, a, a harvest if you stand there and staring at the clouds. Uh, seeds aren't going to sow themselves. Get to work and then trust God with the results. Verse 5 similar point, as you do not know where the way of the spirit comes to the bones of the a womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. You don't know God's will. You don't know whether it's God's will to give life to that baby or to take it. Whether it's his will 
to prosper your crop or to destroy it. But you do know that he has called you regardless to plant. That is your job, to plant. And then to trust him with the rest. Verse 6, in the morning sow your seed, plant. And at evening withhold not your hand. Work hard, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that. Work like it's up to you, pray like it's up to God. Because it is, of course, ultimately, up to him. And at the end of the day, I think Solomon would be okay with me ending this way, now that we have Jesus and he didn't. At the end of the day, when even the wisdom of the wisest amongst us, just remember, Solomon, unmatched in his wisdom in his day, and yet look at all the trouble he got himself into in his life. When even your wisdom fails you, which it will, then we need to trust in Jesus, who, as 1 Corinthians 1.30 reminds us, became to us wisdom from God, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption.